Yep. Welcome to Theology on Tap on the rooftop. This is fun. We're so glad that you came out. If you want to grab some pizza, uh, if you haven't had a drink yet, there's a rooftop bar right down there. Obviously, come and go as you please. Do your best to try and find a seat. Hopefully, there's some in the back as well. Maybe we can scooch close and become friends tonight with everybody. And feel free to move chairs if you need to. Yeah. Are you going to get me? Does that do it? That sounded like, yes, amplification. It's a beautiful thing. All right. Well, if this is your first time at Theology on Tap, we're so glad that you are here. The way this works, it's a little different. This is our first time up on the roof tonight. So hopefully you have some of these sheets of papers around. As we're going to talk for about 20 minutes or so, at any point, you can scan this top QR code, submit any question. Who's doing the moderating the questions tonight? Colton. Colton, where are you at? There you are. Hey, man, thank you, Colton, for doing that. And look, people are sitting in the grass. People are, yeah. <laughs> grass on the roof. Who knew? That's amazing. So, yeah, you can submit a question related or not to what we're talking about tonight. I think we'll have plenty to talk about, but we are... Um, Happy Election Day to you. Same to you. This is an exciting... And I did vote, but I'm not virtue signaling. Well, I am <laughs> virtue signaling. I, I voted, Brian. I wanted you and everybody else to know about it. Um, so we're going to talk about just that. We don't normally talk about um, really you know, two of the most controversial things, religion and politics, things that you're not supposed to talk about in polite society. But we're going to talk we're about diving in. both of them yep. tonight. We figured if there's ever a time to do it, tonight is the night to do it. So um, we are excited to dive into that. And let's just start off uh, without assuming anything. Should Christians, as I, I say this with my I Voted sticker on, should Christians vote? How should, should they engage at all in politics. Yes, Christians should definitely engage in the political process. Part of being a Christian is to uh, try to do what you can uh, to participate in the culture and to uh, try to create a just and good society, even though we know that that is not perfectly going to be realized in this world. It can only happen uh, when Christ is on the throne. Uh, but we are we are called not to bury our head in the sand, but to actually engage. Yeah, yeah. and politics, just like if we were to define it, because you were thinking about basically anything that involves governance, right? And if you think about the very beginning of the Bible, God created man to, if you remember, in his image, they were tasked to do something, be fruitful, multiply, yes, but to have dominion over the earth, to rule as his ambassadors in the world. So you can even look at being made in God's image it is the, the task, the, uh, what's called the cultural mandate, some theologians call, to go um, to basically engage in politics is what is innately human, but also what is specifically for Christians I think we should do. Um, now, obviously, we would, I think, qualify some of this because surely, uh, has anybody met a Christian that's maybe too involved in politics or had a bad experience with Christians in politics? Where does it go off the rails in your mind? Well, I think where it goes off the rails is that a lot of times we, and I'm using that broadly for Christians, uh, 
engage in politics in a way that is profoundly unhealthy and not scriptural. And I think the confusion comes because when you look at the scriptures, it's very clear that the teaching of the New Testament for Christians is that our first citizenship is in the kingdom of God and not in the kingdom of this world, and that our identity is in the kingdom of God and not in the kingdom of this world. And so the framework for participating in politics is understanding that politics is what I would call a second-order issue, and that uh, I'm a big fan of St. Augustine. If you've never read St. Augustine, please do yourself a favor, read some Augustine. Justin's got a lot in his office he can borrow. Uh, but one of the things Augustine talks about is rightly ordered loves, and that when we love the most important thing first, and the next most important thing second, and the next most important thing third, then we live in an ordered and beautiful and meaningful way. But when we get those loves out of order, all kinds of dysfunction and brokenness uh, happen as a result of that. And I think the problem that we see for so many Christians who get overly caught up in the political world is something that C.S. Lewis diagnosed um, very early on in the Screwtape Letters, which is, uh, again, if you haven't read that, please do yourself a favor and do. Uh, it's about how uh, a devil is trying to tempt a Christian away from the Christian faith. And he says, he actually talks about politics, and he says, one of the things that you want to do is to get the means and the end confused, so that if somebody is a Christian and they're wanting to participate in politics, you want to sort of switch the priorities so that the politics become the chief aim and the Christianity is just a way of getting there. And that is the same, what sort of the shorthand mentality is believing that salvation arrives on Air Force One. And that is a profoundly mistaken understanding of the Christian call to be involved. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, boy, there's been some helpful ways of thinking about how to engage in politics that Christians have done. Um, and I, I think where I tend to see sometimes it going off the rails is when people, both on the left and the right, consider that what it means, your, your first task as a Christian is to change this world here and now. On the left, that can be, you know, social justice or um, marginalization or the poor, all that. So or on the right, it could be, um, you know, basically the the importance of democracy and individual rights and that sort of thing and how Jesus deals with individuals. Uh, but people on both sides making, being a Christian is, is fundamentally a political uh, task. And I don't think that's what Jesus came to do. Like it, it wasn't to here and now change this world. Uh, and I think what happens so often is seeing Christians who go totally off the deep end, they have what's called, this is going to be a really big word, but over-realized eschatology. Mm -hmm. That their view of the end times is There's like... There's no extra charge for that. Yeah, that's a, you just <laughs> drop that at your next party and be like, Justin taught me that one. So over-real... What it's saying is that like your expectation of how the world is supposed to be at the end times, it, it's supposed to be realized like here and now. Like You can expect um, that this world here and now can look a lot like what it's going to look like at the very end. And I think there's a more realistic, yet we're still hopeful, like God's still at work in the world. We're not, I, I don't think, I mean, some people would say like they're Amish. This is the other end of the spectrum that we shouldn't engage in this culture and in politics at all. 
we should just avoid it at all costs. Well, I think avoidance is just you're you're going to have a political effect in any way. To avoid it is to not be helpful yeah. to serve the common good. So both of those to to equate Christianity with politics, to avoid politics altogether, are two extremes. I think uh, that we should try to some, come somewhere in the middle. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's most instructive. And this is true for a lot of things, not just viewing politics. It's looking at how Jesus handled it. And if you look at Jesus' life um, recounted in the Gospels and look at what Jesus spent his time doing, we often forget that Jesus lived under uh, in the Roman province of Judea, one of the most oppressive um, and evil government systems ever, where there was massive government corruption where people were being put to death left and right for no cause, where people had no rights. But if you read through the Gospels, you don't see Jesus ever, ever engaging with any of that. What you see him doing is engaging with individuals. And you see him bringing the kingdom of God where he goes through his relationships and doing that in a really radical way. And that's not to say that you don't engage at all, but it does say something about where your priorities are. And, you know, I'm always want to quote Lewis and Tolkien because I think there's a lot of deep scripturally inspired truth there, but there's a great quotation in The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf the wizard is having a conversation with Galadriel the elf queen, and Gandalf says to her, Saruman, the bad wizard, believes that it is by great deeds and great power that the world is changed. But that is not what I have found. What I have found is that the world is changed through small good deeds by ordinary folk in the course of their everyday life. And I think that I think that there is a deep truth in that that we need to get a hold of. The other thing with all of this is that when you look at politics, one of the things to understand is that part of what makes the Christian faith distinctive is that Jesus said our the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting that politics in our culture, um, which over the course of my lifetime is so different now than it was when I was young, um, it's become the only place in our culture where it's acceptable to hate other people and say that you hate them. Um, and that, you look at Jesus' teaching about love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and then you look at the kind of comments that people make in the political world um, about other people who are made in the image of God, and it shows you that there's something profoundly wrong there. And that's and I, I mentioned this in another theology on tap, but one of the amazing things that you see in one of Lewis's letters is he's talking about his prayer life, and he's talking about, you know, it is difficult but so important that I pray for Hitler and Stalin every night and pray that they would be converted to the faith. Well, I think that sort of perspective is largely absent from Christians in politics today. Yeah, we were laughing earlier about... Um Am I on? Did I just go off? Hello? You're there. Okay. Yep. Hi there. Um, we were laughing earlier that I remember not that long ago, it would come election seat, like right on the precipice of election season, the, uh, you know, candidates would appeal to their ideological opponents to try to win them over. And it seems like more and more now, they're just denouncing the other side 
year round at all, you know, at all times. And that's, that's really sad. I think that's something that the Christian faith can actually uh, be a light and leaning, lean into here um, in the political sphere is uh, this lost art of chari- being charitable, uh, caring uh, for those who differ from us, learning their positions better, but also seeing, you know, the, the doctrine of total depravity is one of these things that we don't like to think of, that originals, that we're all evil and bad. If you see your own heart and the fallenness and the brokenness that's in there, that creates a bit of humility that when you look at other people, even your ideological opponents, you now have a measure of grace and humility towards them. I think that's a really important thing that the Christian faith can offer in the political discourse yeah. today. And I think that you know, one aspect of that is that we have to be very careful that no matter how deeply held our political beliefs are, that the way that we express those does not become a stumbling block to other people where they would never want to hear the gospel from us because of the way that we present ourselves in terms of our politics. So one of the verses I know that uh, you and I both love, it, I was going to ask you, how, what does this say about politics? So Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Uh, set your minds not on earthly things, but on the things that are above. Colossians 3, 1, 1 and 2. Uh, that seems to say maybe we shouldn't really engage in politics. What, what would you, how would you respond to that? I would say a couple of things about that. I think there, one of the things that's really important about that verse, particularly in the culture that we live in, even more the one you, you people who are much younger than I am, um, that you inhabit where you are having this stream of media that just washes over you 24-7. One of the things that is important as a Christian to remember is that you can choose to not set your mind on what the culture throws in front of you. You can choose to proactively resist what the culture wants to put in front of you and instead put in front of you things that are true and good and beautiful. And so I think that aspect is really important. The other thing that I would say is you can set your mind on things above and realize that loving your neighbor and justice and working for peace and compassion and all those kinds of things are part of the values of the kingdom of God. And so to the extent that in politics you can express some of those, um, you can be involved in that sphere. But I think, again, the problem we have to be so careful, it's a slippery slope, that we begin to think of politics as the first order issue. And we get so consumed with that that we're much more interested in our party gaining victory than we are in Jesus um, ex- expanding his dominion in this culture. Yeah, that's good. I, I would say, in addition to that, Paul's not saying be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly yeah. good, right? And I think one of the things that politics, it, it, the good thing about it is, it's, and the Christianity is all about the striving for the common good, regardless of uh, belief systems or any of it, striving for the common good of people and human flourishing is what it ought to be about. Yes. And, um, and But at the same time, I think that verse provides something so important as we engage in the political sphere to remember where our true citizenship lies. And that is the kind of the safeguard of the guardrails from going off and idolizing a political uh, position or party or candidate is to remember our true citizenship is in heaven. And that is where um, ultimately we are 
most to be found. Yes. And I think that's a really important thing to keep at the forefront as we engage in the here and now. Yes. And I think another scripture that's really important to keep in the forefront is Galatians 5. Because when you look in Galatians 5, it says the works of the flesh are evident. And then there's this whole list, factions, dissension, quarreling, um, you know, all of these things that sound like, you know, if you watch the evening news. And then contrasted to that, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And whenever you're invested in things that bring dissension and factions and quarreling and rage and violence, um, that is probably a tip-off that that is not being inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And the other aspect that I think is so important with this is that, uh, and again, being older, this is something that I've seen change so dramatically, is the level of our public and private discourse about politics and the whole idea of respecting every person as made in the image of God. And most of us now think nothing of just utterly disparaging people whose points of view are different from ours. And Christians should not be about that. Uh, we, should, we should refrain from that kind of thing. And the, the really unfortunate thing is that we are so, in this culture, characterized by like going for the jugular in every every conversation, and if you go back, you know, even twenty years in political conversations, uh, there were some that were like that, but it was the exception rather than the rule, and there was an understanding of uh, a mutual love for country uh, that in the in the political sphere, where you would try to give people benefit of the doubt. Um, Y'all probably can barely remember uh, September 11th, 2001. But one of the remarkable things about that, uh, and I would encourage you to go watch an old news program about this, is after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, uh, there was a moment where all of the members of Congress came out on the steps of the Capitol and prayed and sang God Bless America together. It's almost impossible to imagine that happening today. Wow. I had no I completely forgot about that. That's because you're so much younger than I am. Just a millennial, <laughs> Ryan. Um, well, as always, we had way too much to discuss because we barely touched the, the tip of the iceberg. And notice, we haven't even talked about like conclusions of what you should do in terms of your political issues. We've just tried to present a framework of how, how to approach politics as a Christian. I think that's important. Um, just in conclusion here, Brian, what would be one takeaway that you would give folks when it comes to uh, either a challenge or a take something like that uh, when it comes to Christianity and politics? Um, one, I would say, how what what is the attitude of your heart toward those who profoundly differ with you on the political sphere? Are you more inclined to say, go to hell, or uh, to pray for those people? So I think that that's an important checkpoint. Um, another is to th spend some time thinking seriously, which kingdom do I really believe I'm a citizen of? And understanding what that citizenship of the kingdom of God means. Awesome. Mine has to do with that quote that I told you to find. Yes. <laughs> that I'm going to, in the dark with my flashlight, have you do this as my takeaway. You try to find that quote here. But what I would suggest is... As a Christian, what we want is our minds to be 
you know, what are the fundamental values that cause us to, did you find it already? Yes. Okay, well, hold on a second. So, uh, <laughs> you, you hold tight right there. Yes, uh, sir. So, the, the fundamental values, the fundamental assumptions that drive our politics, where's that being formed by? Is it friends? Is it myself? Is it media? Is it experiences? You know, those are those are factors and values that you know are influences throughout history that have led to disastrous things in politics. As Christians, we want the Word of God, His revealed Word, to shape how we think about the world and politics, how we engage, how we prioritize which issues. All of that is important, not to be by our own experience or rationale or you know. Uh, other things in the world, but God's word shaping those fundamental beliefs and structures. Yeah. And I think this quote goes along with yeah. that. Yeah. Do you want me to read it? I do. Okay. Would you? All right. So the the uh, what goes before this is Lewis, C.S. Lewis, talking in Mere Christianity about what a quote Christian society end quote might look like, and uh, it has elements that would perhaps appeal to people that are more on the left side politically and people who are more on the right side politically. So he says, and now before I end, I'm going to venture a guess on how this section has affected anyone who has read this far. My guess is there are some leftist people among them who are very angry that it's not gone further in that direction. And some people of an opposite sort who are very angry because they think it has gone much too far. If so, that brings us right up against the real snag in all this drawing of blueprints for a Christian society and politics. Most of us are not really approaching the subject in order to find out what Christianity says. We are approaching it in the hope of finding support from Christianity for the views of our own party. We are looking for an ally where we are instead offered either a master or a judge. So good, yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. Um, well, it is, yeah, we should we should go, I'm sure people probably have a number of questions for this. So if you haven't had a chance, take some time now to look at the questions. You can like ones that you see in there. You can submit another question. Colton, how are we doing on the questions? Where is Colton? We have a few, but it'd be great if people went in and uploaded the ones that they would like to hear, so we'll take 30 seconds. And and as you do that, I just want to introduce a, a friend of Brian and I's, uh, Mark Finley, can you raise your hand? This is our, we're, we're talking about politics. Mark is an amazing man. He spends a lot of time with politicians in DC. He's done prayer breakfasts all over the world. If you are interested at all in this, I would, you're, you would be benefited from just spending a couple time uh, moments talking with, with Mark. And so we're glad that you were able to come out and hang with us tonight. And Mark is from Belfast, which you will know very quickly if you listen to him say even one word, uh, but has experience back in the peace talks in Northern Ireland, has worked with the National Prayer Breakfast in D.C., uh, lots of really interesting experience in politics, so glad you're here. Home of C.S. Lewis. Yes, where C.S. Lewis was born. Yeah. Belfast. And near to where Roy McElroy was born. That's right. Oh yeah. Not that they're all the you same golfers level. out there. <laughs> nerd. Nerd. <laughs> nerd. I wear it well. Are are we ready for our first question? Mm -hmm. You tell me. Is it ever a sin to vote for a particular party of politician? 
how do you decide when all politicians support immoral things? Yeah, amen. That is a great question. Uh, it is virtually impossible to find a candidate that is like, and again, y'all are too young to know this movie, but sometime when you're searching through the like really ancient movies that you might have on your streaming service, go watch Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, it's about this really virtuous guy that goes to Washington to try to make a difference. It is almost impossible to find a candidate who is really virtuous. And so what you have to do is sort through prayerfully and discern what are first order issues, what are second order issues, and try to find the candidate that lines up best with that and realize that you're never going to find one who's perfect also realize that we have in the scripture uh, reminders in the New Testament that the rulers that are over us are ones that God has appointed. Um, and you see in the Old Testament where even rulers who were evil, God used them often against their will uh, in bringing about the purposes of his kingdom. Part of this question gets at the very nature of politics now is in a, in a fallen world, that's that's kind of the job of politics is like you're, you're trying to work for the common good as best you can with fallen people in a fallen world right and so uh, just to tap onto what you said and what we've said before going to the bible what does the bible say are first order issues what are the most important things on god's heart as you read through the pages of scripture um that that will give you both priority and uh where to land on certain issues and recognizing that no politician is, is perfect there but again like you said prayerfully considering it trying to align as best you can with um, each each certain candidate with uh, what scripture puts forward as what's important for God's heart yeah and I would just say one of the most instructive places that's frequently not where we go when we're looking at scripture about this one of the most instructive places for um, understanding priority of issues is the creation narrative and if you go and look at the creation narrative and see that the summit of creation is god creating man in his own image and god created all of the other the the earth the beauty of the earth which were called to steward the animals all of those things but humans made in the image of god are at the summit of creation and so issues that are directly affecting um, humans and human life um, are of a higher order than things that are farther down that chain. And I'm going to jump on real quick because you, we went there. I, I would also say if you're just starved for some late night reading, go to like some Reformation catechisms of the the uh, not the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments. Yes, the Ten Commandments. You know, you that's a great place to go. You may know that it's the moral code, both of the Old Testament, but especially of Christians. And remember, when we think of commandments, we might think of like a, a harsh taskmaster. Taskmaster. But if God is a loving Father, and if He's created the world by design, then our flourishing is found by aligning ourselves with the way the world works. So I would commend to you finding some people in history who've expounded the, the Ten Commandments, and you can see all that's there in each one of them for a full orb picture of what flourishing in a society looks like. Or if you want something more modern than the Reformation Catechist, um, C.S. Lewis's wife, Joy Davidman, 
read a great book on the Ten Commandments that is, deserves to be better known that's called Smoke on the Mountain that I would also commend. There, there are these in every time period, I'm sure. Reformation today is more modern. I like the Reformation. Why not? It's all good. So. There's a trivia piece on the Ten Commandments when you go into the House of Representatives in the U.S. The speaker's seat is right at the front and around the wall they have all of the busts of the people in the history That's in, uh, in Congress? In Congress, yeah. the Capitol wow. building, yeah. That's really cool. What, what we, what's next? Should we err on hiding our political views from friends who might consider our views deal breakers or feel more inclined to share them? That is another great question. Um, <laughs> whenever I think about questions like that, I'm reminded of that really funny Adele video at Thanksgiving where she's singing Hello, It's Me, and they're trying to have dinner, and every time somebody brings up something and it starts getting a little uncomfortable, she just stands up and starts singing Hello, It's Me, and, and I, I feel like that a lot of the time. But I think that we have to check our motives in those sorts of situations, because unless someone, I think particularly in the climate that we're in today, Unless someone has invited our feedback and we're in a place where we can have respectful dialogue, just leading in with what our political viewpoint is about something is often going to be perceived as aggressive and not helpful. And I am a great believer that unless you have earned the right to be heard, you're not going to make any difference no matter how right you might be on the issue. So I think erring on the side of love and building relationship uh, and maybe being a little quieter is not a bad thing. Yeah, that's a good word, Brian. And I think th there's another way I, I can hear that question where if you've been in a friendship for a while and you know that there's something that is, uh, I think of self-censoring, right? There's so much of that going on today because uh, we're afraid of being canceled or whatever. Like. Um, and I think it's important for genuine, authentic friendships for you to be able to actually say everything you said, right? Like earning that right to be heard, not leading with that, which would be aggressive. But if you've had a friendship for months with somebody and they don't know some like kind of what you what you dream about, who you are, what you value, um, that that would be kind of an alarm bell, I think. Yeah. And, and so. I would say, you know, there was this amazing study that was done at my alma mater at Duke where the percentage of people who were self-censoring on campus and this public policy professor's job was to talk. It was right, right during 2016. Yeah. That's was, a fascinating study. It's amazing, yeah. yeah. And so he, he was just trying to get the class to say their honest opinions about it. But I think especially when you're, when you're thinking about friendships, I would really encourage you, um, you need to be able to, to, to be honest, again, over time, to share kind of who you really are and, and what you think. And again, it goes back to respecting people who are different from you. And if your friends can't do that with you, that, that's not a really good friend. Yeah, and I would say the other aspect of that is learning, and this is a skill that's so important in our culture today and one that's so rare, um, but it's 
warning to speak the truth in love. And we're not very good at that. We may be good at speaking the truth, but we do it in a way that is not helpful. And I think one of the things that is so important is to uh, have friends who you genuinely love, who may radically differ from you on some of these political issues and still maintaining the friendship. One of the saddest things, um, and you've probably seen some of these surveys, that um, when you survey people who are identifying in one political party or the other, um, the number of people who have said, I would no longer invite into my house a person who had voted for X. And it's just un... It's just unbelievable. That, that shrivels you as a person is what yeah. it does. And it actually, it, it makes you, you're going to, when you actually engage more with those who differ from you and you have good friendships with them, real, honest, vulnerable friendships uh, that you still disagree on, you're, you're going to be able to have more compassion on those who disagree from you and you're going to be more sharpened in what you believe and why you believe it. And we need more of that, I yeah. think, today. Yeah. And there's deep blessing in those relationships. I was, we were just at Canoogle last weekend, and I have a friend that works there. And if he went down the list of the ten main political issues, we are on opposite sides of all ten of them. But we are still really dear friends, and it is um, a blessing to me to be in relationship with him. And I, it just makes me sad that that's so rare. What is the Christian political party? <laughs> I think you've answered that yes. already. <laughs> there is not a Christian political party. Um, you may be able to evaluate political parties in terms of where, according to your understanding of scripture, which one has more tick marks in the right columns than the other, but there's n neither party is perfect in terms, or I shouldn't say neither any no party is perfect yeah. um, in terms of aligning with that. Yep. What he said. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the Hillsong movement and other megachurches that go pretty far in imitating the world's culture and values rather than standing apart? Oh my goodness, this owl's head moves, y'all. I just saw this. That was the weirdest thing. Sorry. I was listening, I swear. So Hillsong, uh, but it, yeah. it freaked me out. I just, did y'all see that? No? Okay. I swear that moved. We're outside. It's all right, Look, Justin. there's a squirrel, Brian. Justin, uh, don't drink anymore. No. No. Stop it. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good question, and I would not presume to be able to answer that. Um, just a couple of thoughts on it. I do think that Scripture does tell us that uh, using means that are appropriate to try to engage people uh, in a culture that might be different um, from what might have been traditional, that that's appropriate to try to win people to the gospel. Um, the flip side of that is that the church should never be indistinguishable from the world. And the more that the church looks like the culture, then probably the church is not um, following the mandate of Scripture. That being said, in Jesus' prayer in John 17 for his disciples, he prays that they would be in the world, but not of the world. And that they would be 
sanctified in the truth, and that truth is the word of God. So I think if there, you know, any church that is striving to apply the word of God, um, that is striving to bring people to Christ, that is preaching the whole gospel of God, the whole counsel of God, that that is a good thing. I, uh, I'm with you. I, I don't know if I could speak into Hillsong. It's moving, y'all. It is. Look at that thing. Oh, yeah. Thank it you. Moved. I'm not going crazy. It's actually alive. It's not alive. <laughs> I, I will answer the question from my own experience. In youth ministry, one of the lines that I heard, uh, I can't speak into Hillsong, but speaking for myself and, and ministry, one of the lines that I heard that really shaped me was what you win people with is what you win them to. And especially in youth ministry, where more often the parents were really like, as long as you keep our kids off the streets and not having sex, we're happy. You know, and I'm like, wow, I, I viewed my job as a minister of the gospel and trying to share about Jesus. But if that's all you want, like, that's kind of sad. Um, and so, you know, they were like, by all means, like, most of your time should be 95% playing games. Uh, looking more like the world and I was like you know if, if I'm trying to do that it's a losing battle with the world is always going to be more enticing more engaging more fun if you have money and resources to kind of pursue pleasure that things that entice you. entertainment entertainment yes. right and you know one of the things that I wanted to do was be clear that did we play games of course but like the point of why we were there was to talk about Jesus. And so I was not against playing games, but people knew, like the kids in the youth group knew, why we were coming together was to hear about Jesus and, and the scriptures and, and God's word. And so um, I think that might hopefully answer the question about the Hillsong. What you win people with is what you win them to. It doesn't mean you have to be against the ways of the world, and but it, it, it definitely is the purpose of what we're doing is to put Christ on display and, and that he transforms our lives yes. completely. All right. I won't talk anymore about the owl. Do you have any practical tips on how to grow in humility and let go of pride? Yo. Yeah. Uh, that is probably the great question of human existence for Christians uh, because original sin really is all about pride. Uh, there is a Lewis quotation that I'm going to get wrong, but the gist of it is that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And I think that particularly when you live in a culture that is characterized by narcissism and insistence on our own rights all the time, one of the best things that you can do to combat pride is to pray into being profoundly other-centered to learn when you're in conversation to ask questions to the other person rather than talking about yourself all the time. Uh, to learn to pray in your prayer time much more for others than you're spending praying about your own needs. Uh, spending time in worship, one of the great things about worship and one of the reasons I love the architecture of St. Philip's, St. Philip's is designed so that when you walk into that building it focuses your eye right toward the cross on the altar. It doesn't focus you on the other people that are in the church or on the worship band or any of those kinds of things. It focuses you on the cross. And 
those kinds of things where you immerse yourself into something that's not focused on you are a great way to begin to uh, take your eyes off yourself and develop some humility. Yeah, I love that, that Lewis quote. That's taking it off yourself for sure. Um, I think one of the things in the Christian life you start to realize the more you go, the more you see sin still lying in your heart all the time. I mean, you look at the Apostle Paul at the end of his life calling himself the chief of sinners. This is a guy who wrote half the New Testament, and he's calling himself the chief of sinners. And you look at people like Augustine, too, folks who are spiritual giants, and yet see the deceitfulness of sin in their heart and the, the pride that lies so closely. I think it's not being scared of that, but recognizing it and turning from it. And I love the story. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, amazing preacher. And the, the story goes, he was getting out of the pulpit after just preaching this dynamite sermon. And he's coming down, and they said, wow, Mr. Dr. Spurgeon, that was a great sermon. And he said, I know. The devil whispered that into my ear right when I was coming down. And I think that is so true, recognizing in our own lives how deceitful and how close pride lies in theirs. Just recognizing it is half the battle. Yeah. Um, and like, you, like the Lewis quote, turning it onto the positive good of others around us. The yes. more you're thinking about others is kind of the secret to unlocking um, the, the humility there. Yeah. Good question. Should church and state be separate? Should we remove religious ideology from our laws? Okay. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm going to restrain myself um, from giving a really long answer about that uh, because. We'll, I would love to talk to you about John Locke and the jurisprudential foundations of American democracy and all of that, but I, I'm going to restrain myself. Um, I will say that the it is a misunderstanding to say that the United States Constitution mandates separation of church and state. Um, there is the Establishment Clause which talks about not establishing a particular religion. But I would say that natural law, uh, which in my view is the law that is, uh, the law that Paul talks about in Romans, that is visible in the structure of the created world and the universe and the way human beings are ordered, that natural law is the foundation for being able to have any government at all. And you can't withdraw um, that foundation because then you will end up with a purely pragmatic uh, approach to government. And when you have pure pragmatism, then the only thing that matters is who's got the power because you have no absolutes um, that can um, restrain um, the power of government. So I would say it's very important to keep a moral and religious foundation in government. Yeah. Uh, you may know more about so England than I do. Uh, is, is church and state aren't separate? There, church right? and state are not separate. England, uh, and this is so interesting, but having spent a month there in August, um, British people decry how far their country has fallen away from its Christian heritage. But if you're an American, 
it seems like that Christian heritage is just like in your face all the time because it's so different from here. England is officially a Christian nation. The queen and now the king is officially the head of the church. The Anglican church is the official church of the British people. Every remembrance, and you saw this profoundly with Queen Elizabeth's funeral um, and the lying in state, everything was in it framed in a deeply Christian context. So that is, um, it's not a theocracy, but it is a specifically Christian country. And if you go through the Houses of Parliament, kind of like what Mark was saying, and you look at what's on the walls there and the prayers and the other things, it is mind-boggling um, because we're so used to freedom from religion not freedom of religion here, that we get uh, very uh, overwhelmed when we look at the English model. Yeah. I think probably to, going along, this might have been what you just said already, but when people say it's separation of church and state in, in the United States, I don't think they mean, that it means what they think it means, typically. So people will start to decry when, when you are bringing your, like I said, your fundamental values and beliefs, which as a Christian are informed by the Word of God, when you br bring that into the public sphere, people start decrying separation of church and state. Well, actually, like the whole point of uh, being able to talk about in a public sphere, uh, you're, you're, everyone has these ultimate deep-seated beliefs, right? And so that's not what it's talking about, separation of church and state. I think what you said about freedom of religion versus freedom from religion is more in line with what the United States of America was founded upon. Yes, that's right. But obviously you can have England and the United States, which are different nations, but um, both influenced by Christianity, two different ways of going about it. Uh, so I don't think one is necessarily you know, right or wrong. Yeah, this is two different examples. Yeah. yeah. How are we on time? How are we on time? We have five more minutes. We got all the time in the world, Brian. <laughs> How about two more questions? Maybe one. Has God spoken to you about who will win the elections? <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> he also did not send me a Powerball ticket in the mail. I really asked for that one, too. Really. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on God telling us to follow the law when sometimes the law may contradict Scripture? That is a great question, yeah. and if I knew the answer to that, I could make a lot of money. Um, but I, I do think there's some principles for that. I think that we are, um, Romans 13 is a great chapter to read about um, being submitted to the state and the lawful governing authorities. The question is, when the laws begin to transgress the word of God, and if the laws transgress the word of God, is it on a first order issue or a second order issue or a third order issue? And there is a lot of discernment and prayer that's required there, counsel from older and wiser Christians, an understanding of how the church um, over the course of its existence of the past 2000 years has looked at whatever the issue um, might be. So, um, you know, if, it's one thing to look at a Nazi Germany kind of situation. Um, it's another thing to look at some of the other situations in which we find ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say, so the first order issues, we would say 
like Martin Luther, that your our conscience is bound to the Word of God, and that we we must stand at the end of the day on first order issues, even if the law of the land says something. It's civil disobedience. There is a place for that, but I think the question is all too often, um, you know, is this merely a preference that we have that isn't explicitly clear in Scripture that we must follow, um, or is you know, in those cases, we have to follow what Scripture says. But in every other case, it says in Romans 13 to submit to the leaders. And that was written in, what, Nero's time? I mean, right. this, was, yeah. this was the Roman emperor, like Empire. crazy bad leadership. Yeah, this was yeah. like, y'all think it's bad here today. It was way worse there. And Paul was yet saying, submit to the leaders uh, um, in your empire. But I would say the best example, and it's unfortunate that this example is not studied more today, but if you've never done a deep dive into the writing and ministry and work of Martin Luther King Jr., please do that because his work in the civil rights movement is profoundly informed by the gospel. And if you read his writings and look at what he stood for and how he developed his understanding of what he felt called to do, I think that there are many good examples there of how to deal with laws that are sinful and how to approach um, trying to get those repealed. Maybe one more? You weren't ready for one more. Alright, we can cut it. We can cut it. Everybody cool? Um, <laughs> He's still well, here's going. another one. Okay. How do you engage in evangelical dialogue with those non-Christians who have opposing political views on matters of Christian doctrine, which might be a barrier. Oh Say that God. again. Oh my gosh, that question just blew my mind. What? <laughs> How do you engage in evangelical dialogue with non-Christians who have opposing political views on matters of Christian doctrine? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I completely understand the question, but I think one, one thing that I would say is that it is important to engage in dialogue with non-Christians. And non-Christians will absolutely have different political viewpoints and different views about Christian doctrines, many of which they may have very strong views about Christian doctrines that are largely uninformed by what those Christian doctrines actually are. And my experience has been that it is profoundly unhelpful to begin begin your dialogue with those people dealing with doctrinal issues. I think a much better place to begin would be to do something, you may think this is crazy, but read something like one of the Chronicles of Narnia together um, or um, talk about who Jesus is together, those kinds of things. I think that is much better um, trying to start with dealing with doctrinal issues and how people understand them um, is largely going to create conflict rather than build relationship. Um, another thing I've found very helpful to do with friends who are not Christians, who um, are people that like to think about philosophy and all that, a great book to read together is Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian. Um, Bertrand Russell is a very famous philosopher of the 20th century atheist, um, but the book is just terrible, and all his reasons about why he's not a Christian are just, like, really not very good. So it's a great, and usually people who are not Christians, when you say, well, let's read 
Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian, they're like, yeah, let's read that. Uh, but when you start reading it and do it thoughtfully, you start realizing that his arguments are just really not very good. So I'm going to toot our own horn here, but I would try to answer this question. And so notice we didn't say a single thing tonight about, like, I don't think we said, you must believe this in politics about, you know, this particular issue. Because when you're dealing with non-Christians, the, the ultimate rub is, do you think that your life is best lived under your own authority, the way you want to live, or do you think that there's a creator who's made the world for human flourishing? That's where the rub it, rubber meets the road yeah. and I think that's where the rub lies and I think that's where 95% of our time and energy needs to be invested now if I'm talking to a Christian outside like happy to go into that's why we have these times where you can text in anything happy to answer any questions doctrinally but if I'm going to speak to somebody at Henry's on the market I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the way God has made the world and that he cares for the common good and this is kind of how I would approach what that looks like yeah. Uh, so, kind of like what we tried to do tonight. Maybe you can judge whether or not we were successful or not, but that's what we were after. Yeah. So, thanks for coming. Um, email we, list. Yeah, join the email list here at the bottom. Um, and let's see, in two weeks is Thanksgiving week. I haven't talked to you about this, but maybe we do one next week, and or maybe in three weeks. Next week we're going to be on St. Simon's. Yeah, so let's do this, all right? So we're going to go on a two-week hiatus from Theology on Tap. Have a great Thanksgiving. We, can, we can't be here next week. But the week after Thanksgiving, we can do that. And then the following, uh, two weeks after that. So I think it's like November... Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah, what does that say? Thank you. November 29th and December 13th will be the next two Theology on Taps. And then we'll call it quits for 2023 and we'll see you in the new year and we're going to have a lot of recommendations on advent oh advent yay i'm yes. so excited yeah. y'all thanks for coming out this has been so much fun i wish we had a little fire because it started to get cold right here so this has been so much fun thanks yeah. for coming thanks for coming